0: Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street Academy, a podcast on venture capital, technology, and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals. If you're new to the podcast, go ahead and follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and definitely check out all of our existing episodes as well. Today, we're bringing on Chris Stevens, one of the four original developers of Keurig Premium Coffee. When working with Keurig, Chris led the sales team, which ultimately captured 20% of the U.S. households and offices. Chris, thank you so much for taking your time to come on today. How have you been? I am fantastic, Alex. Connor, great to be with you. Awesome. So, so, Chris, I just gave a little background on you, but could you give uh, a little more detail into yourself and how you ended up at Keurig and then kind of what made you qualified to lead sales with them?
1: Sure. Um, well, so I went to Notre Dame uh, in 1970 through 74, was fortunate enough to be able to come here to get an education and play basketball uh, for Digger Phelps. And um, that was a fun ride. We actually were on the team that knocked off UCLA's 88 gaining winning streak. So that was a, that was a nice. good ride. And then uh, I played some pro ball in Europe and uh, had a chance to start my sales career with Procter & Gamble in Chicago. And in five years, it was Chicago, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Cincinnati, Boston. I found out that P&G didn't stand for Procter & Gamble. It stood for pack and go. Um, (laughs) But after that, I had a chance to become president of an Anheuser-Busch distributorship. Then I ran a division for Anheuser-Busch. I was in the beer business. I was the only guy I know actually pursued his college major. (laughs) Um, then i had a chance to run a large spirits wine and beer company and then i met a couple of guys i had a dream of changing the coffee world one cup at a time and i had been in big companies and run some some pretty large organizations up until that point for 19 years and i thought wow you know maybe maybe this is something that could be special And i always wanted to build something but i never i wasn't a business person by training or anything i was a foster kid And knocked around some bad homes so I didn't know anything about business and but over the years I accumulated an interest and I always wanted to to start something so I did a market plan for the two founders pro bono and they liked it and uh, the investors said why don't you come on and help us build this thing so (laughs) I thought okay well maybe my ship has come in and in 1996 I joined the 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 two or actually three co-founders and uh, we took two years to get this thing right. We had to totally redesign the brewer and the packaging line. The original guy developed it, wouldn't let go of the designs and they just weren't realistic. So um, we actually had to, to, to uh, buy him out and uh, we oh, wow. rebuilt the thing and almost shut it down three times, but it's a pretty good example of what you can do if you've got something where you have a competitive advantage. And entrepreneurship sure. is about acting on the, on the obvious and there had been no innovation in the coffee industry for a long time since Joe DiMaggio and Mr. Coffee. So we thought if we could brew it one cup at a time, we'd have variety, freshness, convenience, no waste, no cleanup,
0: and no hassle. So it was fun. <laughs> so we launched
1: in 1998 and the rest is history.
0: That's awesome. Well, I know, so you did, you did just give some kind of background on the company, but maybe a little more would be good. So I, I know most people, Connor, my age, have known Keurig as just this household staple for almost our entire lives, but how, how did it really kind of get started? And then you know, maybe walk us a little bit through your thinking process and when you first kind of looked at the company um, and, and the founders.
1: Yeah, the original founder wanted to develop his own coffee and uh, you know, we thought, you know what, what, as opposed to trying to you know, develop a brand and compete with Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks, et cetera, why not be the delivery system for those kinds of brands that people already know and love and pay a premium for and bring it to them one cup at a time so we thought we should first start with offices and office coffee and go after that because that was the low-hanging fruit and plus if you get a keurig brewer in the office maybe 50 60 people are going to use it they're going to become the future customers for the at-home unit when you develop it so on martin luther king day 1998 i took 12 commercial brewers and 40 cases of k-cups that my kids helped me make because the vendor who was uh doing our line tried to hold us up for another $170,000, and i drove to new york city with a van recruited distributors and then started banging on doors and our idea was that we made it a cup at a time it was going to be premium priced but we didn't sell this as a cup of coffee we sold it as an employee benefit that you can see touch feel and taste Every time you take a coffee break, because office managers were given free coffee away in pots, but no one was drinking it. They were going downstairs across the street to the Starbucks of Dunkin' Donuts and paying for it. So that was the, that's how we started in offices first, New York, Boston, Philly, and I would go in, recruit a distributor, do demos. And every demo that we did for this newfangled coffee machine, when it came time for people to come see it, I had a, you know, tablecloth whipped cream, biscottis, flowers for the ladies. I had a little boom with some music on. So they that's felt great. like they were going into a coffee house, not the break room. And our theme was coffee house taste by the cup.
2: Yeah, that, that that's amazing insight into that. And, and you kind of touch upon like the, you know, obviously it's a very competitive industry. There's a lot of mature uh, companies within it. Um, and, you know, it c- could potentially be difficult to take market share from them. I'm curious, how you went about like developing the partnerships with these these companies, um, you know, like the Dunkin' Donuts of the world, uh, to to do partnerships. Like, what what was like the incentive for them, uh, or how did you kind of try to communicate that to them?
1: Well, our first partner was Green Mountain Coffee Roasters out of Waterbury, Vermont, mm-hmm. and they're pretty progressive uh, folks. For and uh, we uh, the the two founders approached them initially. And they said, well, you know, this is a cool idea, but we're not interested unless you can make a cup of coffee as good as we can in a pot with bag coffee. And Green Mountain is a, a high-end roaster, only class one Arabica beans, the best coffees that you can find, Nicaragua, Colombia, Sumatra, from all over the world, Costa Rica. Um, so I'll never forget, and then I joined the team, that I, we were putting together the, the, the right weight to put into the K-Cup the right grind see the cake up is actually a little mini brew pot there's a filter in there probably 10 to 12 grams of freshly ground uh, arabica bean coffee nitrogen flushed so that there is no oxygen that gets in for at least nine months huh. and i remember we were tinkering with the grind and i, I went, made a nantucket blend for the head cupper and he drank and he said wow that is a kicktail cup of coffee um, and he said, that's better than how we can make it. So the key for us was we had to make it a cup at a time, but we had, it had to be good. And we started with eight varieties, a dark roast, a medium roast, a, a Colombian, two flavor coffees, a decaf, and a flavor decaf. So again, the whole variety thing, people could have what they want as opposed to whatever was in the pot. And first it was green mountain coffee. They always knew it was not an exclusive relationship, but it's kind of like dating. You know, if you say to your girlfriend or your boyfriend, hey, you know, we're, I want to date you, but I still want to see other people. And you do that for a while, but you don't see other people. Then all of a sudden, you start to see other people. They get a little upset. So <laughs> when We started to add roasters. We added Deidre coffee out of California, Timothy's coffee out of Toronto, a Vanuit coffee out of Montreal, Caribou coffee out of Minnesota. So what we were able to do is to talk to these roasters to say, hey, you're really strong in this area of the country where you're at. But we can take you all throughout North America with our coffees, with our system. And that's what we did. So the selling point was, one, they were going to be a part of a growing trend in single cup. And two, they knew that every single cup of coffee that people would drink would be as fresh as if they just roasted it themselves. As opposed to when you make a bag of coffee and you open it up, oxygen kills coffee and it starts to stale immediately. So there were other single cup systems that were big coffee hoppers where you would pour the coffee into the hopper and then on demand. But what you would get is freshly brewed stale coffees. So what they got was a delivery system that would ensure the consumers enjoyed whatever variety coffee of theirs they wanted one cup at a time in areas of the country that they otherwise never would have been able to reach.
2: Hmm, yeah, so so you you touch a a little bit upon like developing the technology. Um, Could you touch upon like how the team actually went developing what about developing like the the intellectual property and like how you, like what the process was to like, did you get a patent or, or what did that process look like? And was there any like competition that kind of came into the market like soon after you guys started or what, what generally like what was the environment like that?
1: So we are, we were, and they always will be about intellectual property. Mm-hmm. We weren't a coffee company. We were not a coffee brewer company we were a technology company focused on the coffee business. And we had all kinds of patents about how the cake cup punctures, how it's made. And then we had all kinds of what we call contingency patents that we weren't going to launch with this way to be able to puncture cake cup. But if we want to do someday, we would own that intellectual property. Our, at the same time that we launched Kraft Foods, $60 billion Kraft Foods, launched their single cup system uh, called Tassimo. And they had Starbucks, they had Maxwell House, uh, and different kinds of brands. And when we took a look at how they were puncturing their capsule, we said, hey, they're violating one of our patents. And we sued them, even though we weren't making any money at the time. But you always have to defend your intellectual property. We sued them. They thought they were going to probably kill us in discovery with all lawyers' fees and stuff like that. But they finally realized that, yes, indeed, that they did. And we got a very nice settlement out of court. Uh, which helped us develop the home unit. So uh, Jack Welsh, who took over GE in 1981, when it was a $16 billion company, very profitable. But when he got there, they had 300 operating divisions. And he said, we need to cut, stream, do stuff. If we're not number one or number two in any product, service, or category, or we can't be within two years, we're gonna sell it or shut it down. And he transformed GE into a $135 billion company and number one market cap company, Wall Street. So he said, if you don't have a competitive advantage, don't compete. And we felt like we had a competitive advantage and really tried to exploit that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's great background on the IP and, and that, that process. <clears throat> but Chris, you've been kind of giving us some of your pitches, your slogan, that type of stuff that you guys use when you're developing the, 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 pr- the product. What is the process that you went through to develop You know, what you think your market position is, your marketing strategy, your selling strategies, <clears throat> and some of these specific ways, <clears throat> excuse me, that you went about pitching yourself to not only investors, but then to, you know, green, uh, you know, other, other coffee producing companies.
1: So amazon.com, that's going to do probably $400 billion this year. Um, they understood when Jeff Bezos started this, he was living in a 500 square foot apartment. Five years later, he was worth $10 billion. But the investors in amazon.com always knew that this was a long term play. And that they would from a pricing standpoint and an operations efficiency standpoint uh, steal market share from consumer product brands were out there first books etc and it wasn't until the last few years that they've really turned profitability uh, that you'd be really impressed with took a while to do that we convinced our investors the same thing that this was going to be a long-term play that we were going to launch in the commercial market we made very nice margins on what we sold both the brewer, the appliance and on the the royalty on the K cup. And we had, we contract manufactured the brewers, we had packaging lines that we installed in the roasters facility, we never touched the coffee. Um, So what was really key was we were able to um, develop a way to go to market that first we would go to offices and use the profits from the commercial business to immediately invest in developing an at-home unit. That to us was gonna be the grand slam. And that was gonna take five to seven years to do it. So we launched in 98. And then you know we got, as the whole country did, horrible 2001 and 911, we were in offices and still only in a commercial business. That almost killed us. We had to lay off 20% of our force We couldn't even go in buildings anymore and do demos because of security. So you're gonna have setbacks along the way. Life's about managing expectations. And our our investors understood that this was gonna be a long-term play. We didn't make a profit until 2005. And for various reasons, we had to market the company and we ended up selling it to Green Mountain Coffee Roasters in 2006 uh, for a very, very
0: nice amount of money. Yeah. And and so that's another question we're actually going to have in a a little bit here. But, you know, you you just touched on the kind of royalty streams that you guys are generating. Can you can you explain to everyone the what maybe a little bit about what a royalty is and then exactly how that was structured and the way in which the coffee is being sold and going to market that that allowed you guys to, you you know, capture those royalties?
1: Sure. So if a roaster was willing to buy a packaging line, they would pay us a lower royalty per cup if they wanted us to install the line uh they would pay and we still had the capital expense then they would pay us a slightly higher royalty so a way that a royalty works is let's say that uh the the we wanted to sell the coffee to distributors at around 25 27 cents per cup Um, what we would do is we would sell the coffee but we actually put the distributors in touch with green mountain directly so green mountain would have the packaging line installed they would roast, grind, package the coffee, and then ship it to the distributors. They would make a nice margin on their part of it. And then they, I, we would get a piece of the, the 25 cents from a royalty on every single cup, and we would never touch it. So it was yeah. a very, very smart business model, I think. And on the brewers, initially, we made uh, a very nice margin on the brewers because we had to because we didn't have the royalties from the coffee built up. When that happened, we were able to gently bring down the price of the brewers. And then when we launched our at-home uh, brewers, we had three brewers. It was a good, better, best strategy, a $99 unit, a $149 unit, a $179 unit. And we basically sold those at cost or below to get to get into the marketplace uh, because we had a strong enough royalty yeah. stream of, of the coffees built up.
0: Yeah. And, and so I think that really moves into another point is, is the, the the kind of sales strategy of Keurig is it's like a recurring revenue stream right and I know nowadays it's very common that investors are looking for some sort of business that has some sort of recurring uh recurring revenue stream so b2b SaaS is, is obviously super popular was the you know was the product developed w- with the goal in, in mind of creating this kind of recurring stream of the k-cup revenue and having people kind of uh, buying more coffee as it goes or was it like that just kind of happened to be the way that it, that it developed as you guys are moving forward and looked like it made sense
1: this was a classic razor razor blade strategy okay i don't know if you buy razor blades but yep. you pay a pretty good amount for those and to me it's i wonder how can this be that expensive well and they only seem to work in that razor well our system was unique because you could only use k-cups in our coffee brewer yeah and our coffee brewer only made k-cups we had a hot water spark for a hot you know, cocoa and stuff like that. Uh, But yeah, it was a classic uh, razor, razor blade strategy where uh, the margins on the coffee over time as this continued to grow, allowed us to be that much more aggressive in terms of marketing. We developed our own uh, direct uh, uh, e-commerce website uh, when we launched the home business. And then you're making the full margin. We actually then would buy the coffee from Green Mountain ourselves, ship it to our distribution center and then send that out to all the retail customers, Target, Goals, um, you know, et cetera.
0: Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's a crazy story. If you have some sort of advice for, for some students out there, maybe an entrepreneur trying to look uh, at starting a company, what what is you know maybe your secret to selling? What's something that one thing everyone who wants to get into entrepreneurship and wants to start some sort of you know producing some sort of product? should know about the selling process or the strategy behind creating a, you know, a marketing and and sales strategy.
1: Okay. So I'm, I have investments in about 20 different companies right now, and I only invest in what I'm willing to sell myself. And I ask basically five questions before I consider doing that and recommendations I provide to those students who want to start their own business. First of all, define your product or service in less than 10 seconds. Who is your customer? Is it the consumer? Is it the distributor? Is it the retailer? Be really clear. How does she like to buy? Does she wanna buy off the shelf? Does she wanna buy direct? Does she wanna buy through a wholesaler or a distributor? Fourth, what's your competitive advantage? Again, if you don't have a competitive advantage, don't compete. Part of that is, do you have any intellectual property? Do you have any copyrights? Do you have any marks that you own? And finally, what's your why? What's your cause? What's your belief? Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K uh, who did the TED talk on the golden circle and leaders eat last and uh, you know, start with why is a firm believer that people don't buy what you're selling. They buy why you're selling it, they buy what you believe. And if you make your belief, their belief then they'll become loyals and advocates for your brand. And I highly recommend anybody, every single letter that I, that I write in terms of letter recommendation for st- students follows the Simon Sinek model. That's how strongly it's only about an 18 minute Ted talk. You can see it on the internet, Vancouver, Washington or Canada, 2009, I think it was. So that's it is, is I try to solve those things. Every single company I invest in has got to have a reason for being. So for instance, with Keurig, we gave 5% of our profits, Green Mountain and Keurig, 5% of our profits to corporate social responsibility initiatives. Helping farmers in the rainforest that after the coffee season is over, he helped them, we help them grow more crops to, to be able to, to, to live through those periods when they're not making coffee. We gave our employees 52 hours of paid time off to volunteer in the community. Uh, we offset 100% of our carbon footprint. So people would buy, pay a premium for Green Mountain Coffee because they stood for something. When I say Patagonia, what do you think of? Saving the planet, right? They give 1% of their sales to saving the planet. So I would say with anybody who wants to start a business, it's got to have a competitive advantage. How do you make money? Do you make and people say, hey, I've got this app I want to do, I'm gonna sell advertising space. No, you're not. All right. So because you, you gotta you gotta make sure that your that your how you create value is really sustainable. And the final thing I ask is, where's it gonna be in five years? Does it have legs? How quickly can Amazon.com knock you off? How quickly can somebody else, if you don't have intellectual property, steal your idea? How fast can people in Asia, who are known historically for taking good ideas and 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 kind of, you know, stealing them, uh, you got to be really careful with that stuff. So that's long winded, but
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I think that's fantastic advice on on the selling part. And kind of speaking of selling, so we haven't uh, most of the people that we've talked to who are entrepreneurs who worked in startups um, are relatively early stage within kind of the given venture that they're doing and haven't had a some sort of exit yet. Um, so we're kind of curious if you could just like talk a little bit about the exit to Green Mountain Coffee in, in 2006 uh, and just like what that process looked like. You mentioned how you guys kind of developed a relationship with them already. Um, but if you could just speak to that a little bit, that would be great.
1: Yes, to early stage entrepreneurs, I'd say partner with somebody. Um, Admiral Bill McRaven gave a great commencement address that I show to every class and every recruit uh, that I meet with for many of the different sports teams and their families. And he's got his top 10 tips for how you can make a difference in the world. And one of them is you gotta find someone to help you paddle. So if you, uh, I read this many, many years ago on a restaurant chalkboard and it stuck with me. It said a great leader doesn't build the business. A great leader builds an organization because it's the organization that builds the business. So as you have an idea, you've got to bring on people that have complementary skills, skills that you don't have in the early stage, because if two partners always agree in business, one of them is unnecessary. So the key thing is, is that you've got to have people with complementary skills. And the other thing is the number one reason why new businesses fail and brands fail is not finance, it's not marketing, it's not capitalization. They didn't sell enough. Whatever their business plan was based off, they didn't sell them. Nothing happens in business until somebody sells something. And that includes if you're a lawyer or a doctor, you've got to sell your practice, your expertise, your client referrals. But in business, it's particularly important. So you've got to understand what your business model is really, really clear and then be able to stick with it. And the other thing is that there's going to be setbacks and staying with you know, the course when it's not working is an effigy to arrogance. You've gotta be able to pivot when you need to. And we had to pivot several times. So we had one of our lead investors manage the pension fund for a consulting company and the consulting company went bankrupt. So they had to liquidate their investments for the benefit of the pensioners. We never would have marketed the company if we didn't have to do that. So when we marketed the company, we had pretty aggressive people coming after us. We sold the Green Mountain Coffee Roasters and they understood because they were such a large part of our business already. They couldn't afford not to buy us. And the premium, yeah. the price the price that they paid, a lot of people thought that they were nuts. You know, the two founders of Instagram sold it to, the, to Facebook for a billion dollars. The market value of Instagram now is over $13 billion. Well, same thing with Green Mountain Coffee. They understood our multi-roaster strategy. They continued to let us do it. And then after they bought us, we still signed Dunkin' Donuts to licensing agreements. Starbucks and several other brands. So it was really, really important in the, in the acquisition uh, that they just let us do our own thing. And then eventually, uh, after I came back here to nerday Matiche and, and left the company, uh, they ended up selling it to a German company for JAB Holdings for $13.9 billion. Wow.
2: <laughs> Qu- quite the, quite the step up, but I mean, that's, that's an amazing story on kind of, you know, how, how, how you were part of the, the early team and you know how i kind of got through the entire process there so really appreciate the insight on that so what we like to do at the end here is just to have five rapid fire questions so like 10 15 second answers they're a little bit more light not really related to keurig but just related to kind of things you're doing now and things you're interested in um so first would be uh what books are you reading right now or would you recommend
1: Winner's Dream by SAP, former SAP CEO, Bill McDermott. Must read for anybody uh, in the business world. Um, The Culture Code by Dan Coyle or the Talent Code by Dan Coyle must reads for businesses.
2: Gotcha. What skill are you trying to develop right now or would you like to develop? uh, Or alternatively, what's like an area that you want to learn more about?
1: Uh, I'll also plug one more book, which is uh, Fighting to Give, which is a book I wrote about a buddy from Notre Dame who died of ALS. 100% of the proceeds go to research for rare diseases. It's on uh, amazon.com, fighting to give. Uh, what skill do I want to develop? You know, I, I, I'm 68. I'm so old when I bend over to tie my shoes, I try to think of there's something else I can do while I'm down there. When I have a birthday, the candles cost more than the cake. So I, you know, for, for me, I, it's not like I want to learn a lot more. I, I'm here to try to be able to give back to students mm-hmm. and to also... Uh, older people who are part of a new thing that we started called the Inspired Leadership Initiative, where people, after they retire, come back here for education and, 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 and bonding with, with, with university people.
2: Awesome. Uh, how do you stay up to date with kind of latest developments in your industry, entrepreneurship? Uh, are there any like new sources that you recommend or that you read daily?
1: There's so much on the Internet. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, anything you want to find out, you can find out. So it depends on what your level of interest is that day. Uh, I try to stay active in the businesses that I'm involved in their technology companies, consumer product companies to know what's going on in there. So I can provide advice to the, uh, the owners or, or officers.
2: Awesome. Uh, who is your favorite CEO, either current or past?
1: Well, I'd have to say Nick Lazaris my CEO at Keurig. Nick came in um, and You know, he was a MIT undergrad, Harvard MBA. He had been chief of staff for the governor of West Virginia for many years. He could work in Excel spreadsheet better than anybody. So he was the financial guy, the CEO. Dick Sweeney was the operations guy. He contract manufactured the brewers, the packaging lines. I was the front guy, sales, marketing, public relations, strategy, that kind of stuff. But Nick Lazarus, he gets the credit for building Keurig to where it is today
2: and if you could have started a company in any other industry which would you have chosen why
1: probably beer um (laughs) so when i played pro ball in uh in belgium uh which was kind of fun i went over there and we won a championship and and um i came back and started working in sales but i belgium has got so many great beers i tried to import a beer called duvel d-u-v-e-l which means devil in dutch and um it wasn't until I became president of an Anheuser-Busch distributorship that I saw it on the shelves in Boston. I was like, oh, I was going to import that. But the family didn't want to do it. But I, I, I love the alcoholic beverage business. Um, and I, I, I know the wine business pretty well, spirits and beer. Uh, so I would probably say that, that that business. The other thing is that I've got a, a company called Two Pitchers uh, that make shandy. So I'm an investor in this and my son's a sales manager. They make their beers with fruit juice in them and they've got about six different variety. If you go to twopitchers.com, um, they're in the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic region, California, uh, they're pretty amazing.
0: That's great. So, Chris, that kind of wraps up uh, the questions we had for you today, but thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your experience uh, and, and, and allowing, you know, students and young professionals to really learn from that.
1: Well, I just say, you know, be nice to the people that you meet on the way up because you never know who you're gonna run you on the way down. And the one thing I would also just emphasize is it's about service, it's about giving back. And we've got to help people, we've got to help those who are disadvantaged. Um, Shirley Schism said, service is the rent you pay for occupying the planet. So make sure on the way up that you're you're doing good things to help people. God bless. Certainly, thank you, Chris.
0: All right, everybody, that wraps up our conversation with Chris Stevens. We hope you all enjoyed the conversation and definitely learned a lot about sales and exactly what the strategy was behind caring, Maybe you can apply those into some of your roles in the future. We are going to skip the debrief section for this podcast. We didn't think there was too much to talk about, but Connor and I's emails are listed on the website, and definitely feel free to reach out if you have any uh, you know, outstanding questions for Chris or us. And so that'll wrap up this podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and definitely check out our next episodes.